You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. I'm super excited to chat. Uh, and I, yeah, we are recording here. So just to give, I guess, yourself a little bit of a perspective here uh, and, and any listeners is... Uh, so I've been working on basically a macronutrient series for quite some time now. I wrote the carbohydrate one a couple of years ago. I wrote the protein one a little over a year and a half ago or so. And I've been working on the fat one for the last, you know, ever since. Right. And, sure. And to me, this is the most, I think, important, most misunderstood, maybe most important. I should use that carefully, but definitely, I think the most misunderstood macronutrient there is. For sure. So, yeah. For context, I came across um, Peter at Hyperlipids' work uh, quite some time ago. Sure. And he took me down the rabbit hole. And earlier this year, I found yourself. I found fireinabottle.net. And I have to tell you, it was, I, I am a voracious reader. It is the fa- my favorite reading I've done in a very, <laughs> very long time. Like a kid at a candy store. Like, so I've been looking forward to talking to you basically all year. I read the entire blog uh earlier this year i have over 60 pages of notes i think i may have more words of notes than the blog itself like it just <laughs> didn't rabbit holes so anyways I'm, I'm super excited to talk um excellent i was preparing for this and i i was like all right i gotta whittle down my 60 pages of notes and i i whittled it down to like 14 pages <laughs> okay so, well, that's, that's a good start so when i when i'm reading your blog kind of and i don't know if you purposely did this but i kind of divided into four chapters, so to speak, in my head. We got the ROS theory of obesity. We got the SCD1 theory. We have metabolism and metabolic rate, probably my favorite one. Uh, And then most recently, reductive stress. Is that how you organized it in your head? I mean, I think think those are kind of the rabbit holes that I went down in the time that I was writing it. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. And the the metabolic, Metabolic rate is really maybe the um, the thread that kind of you know holds it all together, right? Because the ROS theory of obesity and SCD one and reductive stress, like they're all tied into metabolic rate, um, right? Somehow or another, and um, you know, and more and more, the more I learn and look and read and you know all the things. Um, you know, it is feeling like the, I mean, you know, recently I've been writing about reductive stress and I do think that there's something there, um, and it's probably just availability of NAD plus that is really at the kind of like, that is like sort of the master controller of all of this, but then it's really interesting how the different fats are, um, affecting the NAD plus levels. (laughs) You know, and, and, and it's really multifaceted how, how it all works. It's kind of crazy, you know, um, part of it is generating ROS, right? And so um, I, I, I don't know how technical your reader or listeners are, but, um, you know, so ROS in the beginning, when I started writing the ROS theory of obesity, and, and like I say, obviously I was introduced to that concept by Peter at Hyperlipid and you know, when I was originally writing that, I was thinking about um, ROS, our reactive oxygen species. Basically, what happens is in the 
and the mitochondria, um, you know, we're basically transfer, transferring electrons from the foods that we eat into this electron transport chain and it makes ATP. But some of the electrons come back out and they combine with oxygen to make something called superoxide, um, which, you know, I like to make and do a little cartoon figure with like a, a mohawk and he's got like a cape. He got a cape because he's like super ox. He's like Superman, but he's got a mohawk because he's a free radical. And right. you know, anyway, um, <laughs> that's that's what superoxide is in my head. Is that little <laughs> cartoon character? And so, but 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 that anyway. So those electrons that that you know ping back out of the electron transport chain make superoxide, and and that gets pretty rapidly converted into hydrogen peroxide and the sort of neat thing about hydrogen peroxide is it's um, it's both a, a reactive oxygen species, which is to say that it has the ability to oxidize things, but it also is soluble in water and it's soluble in fat, which means that it can just diffuse out of the mitochondria in a way that superoxide cannot do because superoxide has a negative charge and it can't go through a fatty membrane and so hydrogen peroxide winds up being the thing that is building up or not in the cell and when it does build up um certain enzymes are activated or deactivated by the buildup of hydrogen peroxide such as insulin signaling such as certain molecules in um uh, or certain enzymes in glycolysis and even in the TCA cycle, I believe aconitase in the TCA cycle um, can be deactivated if hydrogen peroxide builds up too much. And so, and so, you know, I, I took, uh, uh, I took, what do they call it? Cancer. <laughs> uh, there's a better word for that. Oncology at Cornell um, in going to age me a bit but i think it was probably 1996 and you know back then you know uh free radicals were just you know they were dangerous they caused cancer they were bad right and so then reading hyperlipid it gets you thinking you're like oh well that's there's there's got to be more to this they're they're not just bad they're actually playing this interesting physiological role Right. And so I was thinking about, yeah, uh, these free radicals, superoxide as signaling molecules. Um, but then, you know, as I've learned more and more and more, I've thought a lot more about the overall redox balance of the cell. Right. And so now you have the mitochondria and as, and and so the, the, one of the big things that definitely happens is that saturated fat drives more ROS production in um, in the mitochondria than do unsaturated fats, and really that means all unsaturated, like oleic acid, monounsaturated fat drives way less ROS than does saturated fat, and so that's a key that's a key switch. And of course, we you know with the SCD one theory of obesity. SCD1 is this enzyme and it just converts saturated fat to monounsaturated fat. And so it's controlling the ratio of fats and it's essentially controlling um, how much of this superoxide we produce when we're burning fat. Yep. Um, and so that is having this downstream effect of, of controlling the whole redox balance of the cell. And 
you know, and, and, and redox balance just means it's a fancy sounding word. Um, it's really just kind of like how many, <laughs> how many of these high energy floating electrons there are around because like, you know, the, the energy in our food comes from the hydrocarbon bonds, you know, like fat is just carbon and hydrogen stuck together. So oh, each of those bonds has a pair of electrons. And it when comes they comes reduced, <laughs> right, it, it's reduced, right? That's what it is. That's a reduced, those enzymes or those electrons are in the reduced state. And what's going to happen, you know, oxygen is like the big bully. So if we think of these electrons as like your lunch money and oxygen's the bully, oxygen always wants to take your lunch money. You know, it always wants yep. to take those electrons. Yep. And so what happens is when those electrons go back to oxygen, there's a bunch of energy given off. Right. And so, and so that, and so that's the whole, that's how we make ATP. Right. And so, so normally um, those electrons get carried to the electron transport chain by NAD. Um, NAD plus is the oxidized version. It's lost its electrons, but when we burn, you know, fat or glucose, it, it gets two electrons from the glucose and it takes it up to the electron transport chain and it drops them off. Um, so it's, it's NADH when it has the two electrons. So it's in the reduced state when it has the electrons, drops them off to make ATP, and then it's NAD plus again, and then it can pick up two more electrons. So, you know, it's like a yep. taxi. It's like a yep. taxi for electrons, right? And oxygen needs to get the electrons and they, the electrons start in our food. So when I say reductive stress, all that that really means is that too many, all of the NAD is already in the NADH form. And so we can't keep burning food because there's no NAD plus left. So we can't, you know, right. or insufficient NAD plus is a better way to say it. There's always some. Um, and so our, our metabolism slows down because there's not enough NAD plus and it's all NADH and they already have electrons and we're not burning enough calories and there's nowhere for the electrons to go. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And That's I think one, one of the key things that and I definitely would want to come back to that, this part and like unwind it a bit, but one of the key things, it seems like the reason we have the inadequate NAD plus to keep running the Krebs cycle is because we are not generating enough ROS. And so that to me seems like that is the precursor to inadequate NAD plus. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And so, and so on my blog recently, <laughs> I've been writing a lot about an enzyme called NNT um, because what, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the redox balance and what happens is, okay, so, so an electron comes out and you get this superoxide. Superoxide, there's an enzyme called superoxide dismutase, very rapidly converts the superoxide to hydrogen peroxide. And that doesn't take any energy it's just magic that the enzyme does. And so now you've got hydrogen peroxide and what hydrogen peroxide is turned back to water by um, this thing called glutathione. Yep. And there's an enzyme, which I think is, I forget the name of the enzyme that doesn't. Anyways. Um, and so, but once glutathione is involved in that reaction of converting hydrogen peroxide back to water, it becomes oxidized glutathione and so in my head i was like okay well if the glutathione gets oxidized the only way to um you know it has to then get reduced so that it can be used so that it can deal with another molecule of hydrogen peroxide okay so well how does that happen well there's an enzyme called glutathione reductase 
And what that does is it, um, it takes, so there's another thing called NADPH, which is very much like NADH, except it has a phosphate group on it. And, but the cell keeps like a separate pool of NADPH from NADH and uses them for different things. Right. And so, um, and so <laughs> I was like, okay, well, if, if every time there's a hydrogen peroxide, what happens is glutathione uh, reductase takes an NADPH and it converts it to an NADP plus yep. and it uses that. So the NADPH is getting oxidized and the glutathione is getting reduced. Right. Because in a redox reaction, one thing's always getting reduced and one thing's always getting oxidized. And that's done by the enzyme glutathione reductase. And bam, now you've, now you've got your glutathione that's ready to remove another hydrogen peroxide and you have this NADP+. Yep. And I was like, and I'm like, okay, but, <laughs> right, somewhere in the cell, um, well, and then what happened is um, the guy, um, oh, I'm going to space out his name. It'll, it'll come to me. Um, Natambi is his name. Uh, he's done a lot of the work with SCD1. And he came out with a great paper in 2020. And so the thing about SCD1 is they made these uh, mice that don't have this enzyme SCD1. And so therefore they can't convert their saturated fat to monounsaturated fat. Okay. And the cool thing about these mice was that they have really high metabolic rates and they're totally resistant to obesity. Um, and the only difference between them and normal mice is they literally just can't make, they can't make monounsaturated fat. And so their fat is very, their body fat is very saturated when you look at it. And so they came out with this paper, um, that showed that those high metabolic rate mice that didn't have SCD1, um, have a very high level of NAD plus. And so, so I knew that, 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 you know, I knew the way that we detoxify um, the hydrogen peroxide is by creating, well, it, it creates NADP plus. And I knew that mice who only have saturated fat, who therefore presumably are generating a lot of hydrogen peroxide had a ton of NAD plus, right? <laughs> so you're like, well, there's gotta be something, there's gotta be something that's in, that is taking that NAD plus from getting rid of the hydrogen peroxide and converting it back to, or sorry, taking the NADP plus that we get from getting rid of the hydrogen peroxide and converting it to NAD plus because they're very similar things. I was like, there's gotta be an enzyme that does it somewhere. And I was just like Googling and um, I looked at a bunch of different things and, and there's some redundant ways it probably happens. But finally I stumbled across this thing called NNT and I was like, this is it. So NNT sits in the membrane right next to the electron transport chain. And it actually uses pro the proton gradient as fuel and it converts, it takes the NADP plus from getting rid of the hydrogen peroxide and it gives us back NAD plus. And so what it does is, is it maintains the pool of NADPH and it gives us back NAD plus. And so that was the key, like the Eureka moment that like tied the whole system because I knew there something had to be going on there. I'm like, right. like, right. Cause you see, you're looking at the thing and you're like, okay, well it's the, it's the, right. The hydrogen peroxide is making all this NADP plus, but then, you know, there's, it's, there's gotta be a connector. There's gotta be an enzyme doing this. And, um, you know, and, and NNT is, there's a community of people doing research about it and 
uh, Cody Smith in North Carolina is one. And like, he's done some, he has some great papers out there. Um, and, and he is really the one, he has this fantastic paper where they show that basically NNT is capable of, or, you know, normal cells with NNT are capable of uh, getting rid of like 70% of hydrogen peroxide generated in the mitochondria before it ever leaves the mitochondria in, in a normal functioning system. You know, it's a very efficient system of converting those, um, you know, the reactive oxygen species back to NAD plus yep. and the NAD plus of course is what drives our metabolism forward. Um, and so, you know, it's a really a nice little system. Um, once you figure it out, but yeah, it took some, <laughs> it took a lot of searching. I'm like, yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I mean, when I read this about this latest part on reductive stress, to me, it really did feel like kind of put a bow on it, at least a little bit, because when I, and I know you are like mostly focused around like obesity and yeah. that has been, that has been like my, my number one thing, interest with metabolism and obesity Right. And all roads to me seem to lead to thermogenesis and mitochondrial uncoupling and people who are obese and can't get out of it. Something is going wrong where they're not doing the thermogenesis and they don't get the mitochondrial uncoupling to release energy, excess energy as heat versus right. storing excess energy as fat. And it had bothered me for many, many years to be like, but why, like, what is the, what is the switch that makes someone like, cause I feel like there's a lipostat, right? And if I starve myself right now, my body's going to do a bunch of things to make sure I eat more and I get my body fat back up high. Right. And the light switch should work the other direction too. We get fat, we put on, you know, leptin starts pumping out more mm -hmm. there's these mechanisms that should get us back down. And right. I'm always like, once we get to a point, it seems like the body wants to keep putting on more fat. And yeah. like, to me, it doesn't make sense. It, to me, that's like broken metabolism, but I love how you reframe that. Cause I agree is this may not be pathology, but this may be by design metabolic right. design of high, I call them like a hibernating metabolism, uh, exactly. before, uh, which I found, which really, it does like connect all this together. Cause it's like, it does right. Because now you're like, Oh, there's actually a reason that it's all like this. Exactly. Cause usually <laughs> I'm like, Biology is yep. not doing something to kill us like crazy, right? Right, right. It's trying to help us get through winter, you know. And and, and what, what you start to see is that in a lot of these systems, you know, once things start to uh, point in the direction of fattening, um, there's all these positive feedback loops that just keep pushing it in that direction. It's like, it's like SCD1 creates monounsaturated fat and monounsaturated fat increases SCD1. You know what I mean? So the very, you know, and normally with enzymes, normally enzymes are inhibited by their end product because, you know, it, if there's enough of the end product, you already have enough of it. You don't have to keep making it. Exactly. But in the case of SCD1, it's like, oh, well, we started making this monounsaturated fat and now we have this monounsaturated fat. And so now it looks like we're getting fat. So, oh, I guess I need to make even more. You know what I mean? So it's like, um, and, and, and yeah, and there's, and there's tons of these things. And then of course, once you get monounsaturated fat, now you get, um, that's when you get reductive stress in the mitochondria because you can't burn the, you know, the, the thing in, that I was talking about in my last blog post that I also realized is that 
the um so the generation of of uh reactive oxygen species is not only in the electron transport chain is not only uh, providing NAD plus, but it's basically, you know, bringing more total oxygen in, you know, it's burning more total oxygen in the mitochondria. Cause at the end of the day, our metabolism is controlled by how much oxygen we burn. And guess what? Every time that we, you know, an electron comes back out and we make a superoxide, the superoxide is that electron combining with O2 with oxygen. And so, so it's like, instead of just the traditional view is that oxygen is only consumed at complex four of the electron transport chain. But in fact, um, all of this superoxide production is also consuming oxygen and it's getting rid of those electrons and it's reducing the overall, you know, um, uh, redox balance of the cell back towards oxidized, you know, at complex one and at complex uh, you know, I think two and, or not two, but complex one and complex three and complex four are in fact all burning oxygen um, to ensure that, uh, you know, the fuel burns cleanly and that we don't have a buildup of acetyl-CoA, except that when all of our fat is monounsaturated, we don't have an, you know, we're not making as, we're not burning as much oxygen at complexes one and complexes three, and so then, you know, then you don't have as much NAD plus coming back and you have, you end up with too much NADH and, you know, not enough oxygen basically, right? Like we need to get more oxygen into the mix and with MUFA, you can't do it. And so hibernating animals, of course, massively increase SCD1. They're full of MUFA. Um, lot, tons of studies have shown this. If you look at bear fat, it's all MUFA. Um, and so... So all of these hibernating animals are eating PUFA to spark this initial flipping on of SCD1, and then they fill up ultimately with monounsaturated fat. And then, you know, that's, that slows their metabolic rate down. Acetyl-CoA builds up. Their mitochondrial enzymes become acetylated. And the, the acetyl groups also turn on the lipogenic transcription factors, SREB B1C, PPAR gamma both get turned on by acetylation, whereas your mitochondrial enzymes that are burning fat get turned off by acetylation, right? And so, so at every level, you just see this like, okay, well, <laughs> first we made too much MUFA, but then, you know, that allowed the acetyl-CoA levels to go up and that turned off our fat burning enzymes. And then it turned on the transcription factors that make the lipogenic enzymes. And so it's just, it's, yep. it's, it's all positive feedback loops, you know, and then until you're fat. And <laughs> so it's like, it's a really well-designed system. If the goal is to make sure that you fatten up for winter. Right. And you don't need, and you use less oxygen consumption, which is basically the definition of decreased metabolic rate. Exactly. Uh, and you're not regenerating the NAD plus, which is not going to turn on the sirtuins that you need to deacetylate the mitochondrial enzymes. So you're stuck you're stuck sleeping basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I, I'm sure you saw it, but there was a bunch of, of experiments done even in the like mid nineties, or I think even in the eighties, I think the first one was like 1987 maybe. And um, yeah, where they fed hibernating squirrels, either lamb suet, like lamb kidney fat or, you know, whatever, sunflower oil or something. And 
when they tried to, when those squirrels tried to hibernate, um, yeah, the ones that were given the lamb suet just couldn't get their metabolic rate all the way down. And then they woke up prematurely from hibernation and they just literally can't hibernate if you don't give them enough polyunsaturated fat. Um, and, and, and this has been known forever, you know, well, 35 years or something. For a long time. And, um, you know, and it still hasn't really caught on, but <laughs> we're, we're getting there. I, yeah, I think you're doing super interesting, like very interesting work. Because, you know, I tweet about stuff like this and it's not really like, like known anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like it, I actually, I tweeted out something today or yesterday that very controversial. I said, saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease. Uh, right. And it's just, you know, you shouldn't tweet that unless you want to get hate mail, but I, you know, getting ready for this, you know, I'm reading all about saturated fat and I'm like, I mean, it's the body can't be designed to be like, you're eating this macronutrient that really we need to thrive. Right. Also clogging our arteries. Uh, so I was thinking maybe real quick, we review our ROS theory. I got sure. a couple of questions related to that SCD theory questions to that. Uh, so just to kind of, I'll put it in a little nutshell. I got my notes here. Um, ROS theory, basically we take saturated fat, which is going to have a higher ratio of, of FADH2 to NADH going to create a bottleneck in the mitochondrial electro electron transport chain that at coenzyme coenzyme Q specifically. Right. Uh, it's going to cause reverse electron electron transport. So basically spit those electrons out, going to create the ROS, which is superoxide, which can get converted to hydrogen peroxide. Um, right. and that's basically the signal, right? right. So that, that's what we say. This is the signal. And so I want to talk about a couple of those signals. The first one that you mentioned was turns off insulin signaling, right? So it's right. the way the cells like enough energy here, insulin, I see you knocking at the door, but we're not going to answer that. Right, right, exactly. And the idea being, and of course, people uh, hear that and they think, oh, well, that's bad, right? We don't want to be insulin resistant, right? And so it's already a controversial thing to say, but, you know, but it really depends if, if you're a fat cell, and you're already fat, you know, insulin is a, is a, is a signal to take in energy, right? To take in glute, to take in blood glucose. Um, And so, what you don't want your fat cells doing is taking in a bunch of blood glucose because they have a low metabolic rate. And what are they going to do with it? They're going to turn it into more fat. Um, you know, that's one of the major sources of lipogenesis in the body is your fat cells. And so, right. The idea is that when your fat cells are burning saturated fat, they're, you know, they have got all the fat. So they're the first one that kind of starts burning fat when like in the postprandial state or whatever. Um, and so you want them to quickly generate ROS and stop taking in glucose. You know, your, your, your muscle cells can still take in that blood glucose and make glycogen and burn it, you know, to keep your overall body's, um, you know, glucose, blood glucose, correct. Right. But you don't want your, you don't want your adipose tissue and your liver to keep taking in sugar and, and making fat out of it. Right. And so that's right. That's basically the idea there. So what are your thoughts about this? You have this large amount of ROS because you have high saturated fat. It blocks the insulin signaling, which one of your blog posts really, you know, nicely says, yes, insulin brings energy in, but it also, you know, is very 
anti, uh, it basically is going to let you stop breaking down fat. But because right. you're not doing that, you're able to keep leaking free fatty acids into the blood. So you, the there's a period where it's mostly talked about like in the carbohydrate insulin model, where you have this period where insulin sucked up all the energy. So then you get, you know, hypo glucose and it makes you hungry and right. such. But when you don't respond to insulin, the, the fat cells able to more quickly re- continue to re- release fat into the bloodstream that kind of prevents this postprandial hunger. Right, right. And so you can see that um, um, there's a study done in Spain where they gave people, you know, a meal of glucose or, you know, I think it was bread with a fat and it was either, you know, butter or, you know, I can't remember uh, the exact fats they use, but let's say it was butter or sunflower oil. Right. Um, And I think they use olive oil. And so what you see is, yes, so insulin, so your fat cells release free fatty acids to kind of feed the body, right? Yep. And um, insulin, the first thing it does in the fat cells is the, the fat cells stop releasing free fatty acids in response to insulin. So you're no longer burning your own body fat once insulin is doing its thing. And so, right, so if you eat butter, if you eat bread and butter, essentially, um your fat cells become insulin resistant sooner and those free fatty acids rebound much quicker. Whereas if you eat bread and sunflower oil, it takes a lot longer for the free fatty acids to return to the baseline value. And so it takes a lot longer so that you get back to burning your body fat after you eat vegetable oil than if you eat butter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so do you worry about, because if you think about this, this insulin resistance being a good thing in this context, fat, fat cells being insulin resistant. Um, you would think you eat a post postprandial you'll have higher blood sugar levels because if all the cells are, you know, hypothetically full, you'll have higher blood sugar for longer. Is that right? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and I'm like, I'm, I, you know, um, there's this big trend on, you know, nutrition t- Twitter and elsewhere of people wearing continuous glucose monitors. Um, and I'm kind of like, like, I'm not sure what the, like, I'm not sure what I want to see postprandial. Like that's kind of people right. are like, Oh, I can't eat this. I get a high postprandial glucose response. And I'm like, well, maybe you're supposed to have a high postprandial. Maybe glucose that was response. good. That's, I mean, you know, I, you're probably not really, but I think that's more, there's this whole, there's a, there's a first, there's a first phase insulin response that happens just in your liver. Yep. Um, and, and that is actually the thing that, um, like as people become closer to diabetic, that's like the first thing that you lose is that first pass insulin. And so in people with really good glycemic control, what's happening is the liver is grabbing a lot of that glucose as it comes in and it's making it into glycogen. Yep. Um, and so those people have a, a small, um, you know, glycemic, whatever, after a meal. Um, but if you, but, but okay, but let's say that you are sort of a person who's already lost that first phase, then you're probably going to have a high, a high <laughs> blood glucose response after a meal. But I'm not sure, like, it's unclear to me if, um, right, it's like if I eat butter with rice, uh, I might have a higher insulin curve than if I eat sunflower oil with rice. 
But that doesn't make it a good idea. But I think with people using, you know, continuous glucose monitors, I think you can get some really bad ideas from that by always assuming that lower glucose curves are always better. I'm not sure that's a correct thing to say. Yeah. And it reminds me, I think it's probably your blog where it's talking about this as well, where there's these diabetic medications that are effective and it's effective. They effectively control blood sugar, but make you super fat. So it basically exactly. it's like, yeah, exactly. So we're controlling your blood sugar better, but you are getting super fat on this medication. Right. It's, right. It's controlling it because you're taking you need to make fat with it. You know, exactly. Uh, it's like, okay. Yeah. And, and what you're talking, I think you're talking about rosiglitazone probably, which is a, right. um, so it's a PPAR gamma uh, activator and PPAR gamma increases SCD1. So if you increase SCD1, you can take in all this glucose and you can turn it into fat very effectively. And that makes your blood glucose go down. Right. So, and so, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's that. Uh, and <laughs> so I, I, I'd like to talk about the next ROS signal. So ROS reactive oxygen species, that's the signal for a lot of these things. One that I find super interesting is like its effect on transcription factors, notably UCP1, UCP3, NRF2. And just so kind of I'll run by my understanding of this, and then we can d dive a little deeper into it. RCP1 is this my mitochondrial uncoupling in brown fat. We don't have, humans don't have a lot of brown fat, things like mice do. So the mice experiments show like much more kind of, I would say, enhanced effects here. Right. Uh, but UCP3 is mitochondrial uncoupling in muscle. And so ROS turns on transcription factors that turns on mitochondrial uncoupling, which is basically a way of, this way I think about it. ROS signals oxidative stress. The cell's like, I want to get rid of this oxidative stress. So we turn on various pathways to relieve it one being mitochondrial uncoupling. So it's basically, we got this oxidative stress, we're gonna release it by releasing heat, thermogenesis. Um, also NRF2 does it via upregulating glutathione basically to get like like we're talking about, right? Yeah, and I, I would have to look, but I'm pretty sure that NRF2 also upregulates UCP3. I'm like, okay. 60% sure of that. <laughs> but, but we know this mitochondrial uncoupling is increasing in response to ROS. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there was, let's see, I had a note here. Let's see. So NRF2 is transcription factor. Basically, this signaling the cell, the way I think about it, there's oxidative stress. So let's upregulate antioxidant production like glutathione. Right. Um, which we we're talking about, which is this pathway that we need to basically get rid of what would be reductive stress and regenerate NAD pot plus. Right. Uh, so one thing that I noted, NRF2 decreases SCD1. Is that right? I don't think that's right. In fact, that wouldn't make sense to me. That's why I put a question. No, I think if anything, NRF2 might somehow increase SCD1, which okay. is a concern. And so, and so, here, so my view on uncoupling proteins and NRF has become a lot more nuanced as I've learned about things. So one thing is that um, when you look at uh, cancer cells or if you look at um, obese people, they often have a lot of glutathione. 
And so what's happening is um, <laughs> they're, they're um, you know, so they, they do have oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is causing the NRF2 upregulation and that's upregulating the glutathione to deal with it. But now what you have is you have all of this reduced, you have this huge load of reduced glutathione. Right. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of adding, it's sort of building on to the reductive stress, right? Because you're building this huge pool of like reduced things. Um, and of course there are different redox pools, but still they all have different ways of like communicating with each other. Um, and, and I think that the, okay, but then, so why do cells have oxidative stress in the first place? I think that's a really important question. And, and what I keep coming back to is that, so what happens is, as I've said, in a functioning mitochondria, um, 70% of the, of the hydrogen peroxide that's produced in the mitochondria is dealt with right there in the mitochondria by NNT and, you know, glutathione reductase and, and the whole system, right? Superoxide dismutase, they're all there. They're working in unison. They basically don't, you can generate a ton of, of superoxide, but, but the mitochondria won't release a ton of hydrogen peroxide in a healthy cell. And so the cell doesn't go into um, oxidative stress, even if you're making a lot of ROS, right? But what happens is as reductive stress takes over the cell, well, now your NNT becomes acetylated yep. and it's not functioning effectively to remove or to, you know, replace the NAD plus and your NADPH levels start to drop. And now glutathione reductase can't work effectively to get rid of the hydrogen peroxide because NADPH levels have dropped because NNT isn't replacing the NADPH. Right. And so I think that's, and also um, if you have a buildup, if you have tons and tons of NADH, um, they're all trying to dump their electrons onto complex one. And so reductive stress by a different mechanism also generates a lot of superoxide because you have all this NADH. And so you have all this kind of like electron pressure, they call it, which is a term that I don't love, but it's sort of evocative of what's really kind of yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you have all this NADH and it's just all trying to dump its electrons. And, and so you get, so, so in that scenario, so now you have reductive stress and you're, you're still generating a lot of, of um, like I say, a lot of superoxide because of all the NADH has all those electrons and they got to go somewhere. Yep. Um, However, the system to clean it all up and replace the NAD plus is now acetylated and it's not functioning. Mm -hmm. And so now the mitochondria is dumping huge amounts of hydrogen peroxide into the rest of the cell. And so that's, you know, that's why I wrote the post recently that reductive stress is the source of oxidative stress, which sounds counterintuitive, but once you understand how all the parts work, it actually makes sense. It does make sense because I, that was a tough one for, for me to wrap my head around because <laughs> I didn't fully understand the reductive stress relieving mechanisms. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't totally understand it either. That's one of the reasons I wrote the article was to force myself to actually figure that because 
there's a lot of there's been a lot of review papers written about it and i'm like reading the review papers and i'm like i don't think they understand it either <laughs> they're just like making these weird arguments about like it's like they can see that it's true but they don't really understand it and they're writing these review papers saying like well this is overcompensating for that and that's overcompensating for this and it's back and forth and <laughs> I'm like, right. well, that's not really a good answer either. Right. So, it's, you know, and, and the more I talk about it, the more it starts to make sense. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm starting to I'm, see it, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's all just kind of, yeah. So would you define, how would you define good oxidative stress versus bad oxidative stress? Because I, I, when I think of ROS, I just, I, I think oxidative stress may not be the best word for it. Because we want yeah. this ROS. So, so I think of oxidative stress as a change in redox balance. Okay. Right. And so, so anytime we're talking about change, you have, you have ROS in and you have ROS out. Right. And so you can create oxidative stress either by increasing ROS in or by decreasing ROS out or by both. Right. And so, I think in a healthy functioning cell, what's happening is you're generating plenty of superoxide and you're very efficiently dealing with it in the mitochondria. That cell is going to have a high metabolic rate. It's not going to be an oxidative stress because even though it's generating a lot of superoxide, it's not going to build up, right? NNT's there, glutathione reductase, they're all doing their thing. And and that's a, a, that cell is going to have a very high metabolic rate. And you and you can show this in cells. Like if you take if you take um, a cell culture, a tissue culture, and you just all you do is overexpress the enzyme NNT, their metabolic rate goes up ten percent just with that one enzyme. And if you put in a you know a, a microRNA that reduces expression of NNT, their metabolic rate drops ten percent. And interestingly, <laughs> that 10% one way or the other variation in metabolic rate that you can do in a tissue color lab or a tissue culture is just about the same as the difference in metabolic rate that we saw historically happen like in the American South in the 1930s, right? their metabolic rate was down by about 10%. And when you look at people like the, um, you know, the Tsimani um, who have a very high metabolic rate in in the Amazon, um, their metabolic rate is maybe, you know, 15 to 20% higher than modern people, which are in turn 10% lower than what they used to be. And so that, that range of about, 10% 10% one way or the other from the median. Um, yeah, you can do that in tissue culture with NNT and it seems to be the kind of like historical variation among different peoples as well. And so when I, you know, when you see that kind of correlation, you're like, okay, well that, it's that's very consistent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't prove anything, but it gives you an idea that maybe I'm, you know, not completely crazy. Maybe I'm on the right track. I think yeah. so. Uh, and so I, I have a question and one before we, we jump in a little bit about SCD one is I thought about this a lot because blood, basically hypothalamus sensing energy, leptin, blunt's appetite, 
I always think like a diabetic with high blood sugar, high triglycerides, they should have a low appetite because the hypothalamus should say there's so much energy here. Like, why am I eating? Right. Do you, do you have a, can you help me out with this question? And what made me think about this is like the ROS creating the insulin resistance, the good kind of insulin resistance, higher blood sugar, hypothalamus sees that says we're satiated. There's plenty of food here. Right. Well, I mean, I think that, so I think that that is, um, I think, I mean, I, I think that's tied in to the whole idea of torpor, right? Like if, if we have mistakenly switched our body into this alternate metabolism that we're trying to fatten up for winter, you know, of course, if you're, if you're a bear, you know, bears in the fall when they're fattening up become hyperphagic, which just means they overeat. Right. And so one of the things that you have to do to fatten up, to hibernate is to become leptin resistant. Right. If you don't become leptin resistant, your metabolic rate is just going to increase exponentially. And no matter how much you eat, you're going to burn off all the calories. Right. And so you have to, and so, and, and, and more and more, and I, th- this is total speculation. I haven't really researched this, but um, I- I'm wondering if um, leptin resistance is really just lack of NAD plus. And the reason that I think that is the main thing that leptin or one of the main things leptin does is it activates AMP kinase. And AMP kinase is a key metabolic regulator. It, um, it upregulates all of these enzymes that basically make our metabolism go. Right. And AMP kinase is activated by CERT1. Yep. And CERT1 is an NAD plus dependent deacetylase. And so deacetylase. And so without NAD plus, um, CERT1 isn't activated. Without CERT1, leptin can't activate AMP kinase, and therefore leptin can't increase our metabolic rate to help us burn off the fat. And one of the things that and one of the things that AMP kinase does is it downregulates SCD1. And so when the SCD1 gets, so when you eat the PUFA, right? So here's the, here's the, here's the sequence of events. You eat PUFA, you're making less ROS, you get reductive stress, you get reductive stress, which means low levels of NAD plus. Um, the reductive stress turns on SCD1. So now all of your saturated fat is becoming MUFA. Um, the MUFA keeps you in reductive stress. And so now leptin is trying to turn on AMP kinase as you get fatter and say, Hey, we have extra energy. We need to burn it off. Yep. But since there's no NAD plus, because you're making all the SCD one, the, 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 you know, the, the AMP or the leptin cannot signal the AMP kinase, which in a normal system would turn off the SCD one yep. and would allow you to increase your metabolic rate and burn off the extra calories, but you can't do it because you don't have the NAD plus. That's so does leptin, and I don't know this, does leptin directly upregulate SCD1 or indirectly only? It, 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 it directly uh, activates AMP kinase and AMP kinase 
down regulates SCD1. And, and there might be an intermediary step. I'm not, I don't remember, but. Because AMP kinase also, I mean, like you said, it does a lot. It basically turns on, turns up CPT1, which is going to keep the fat flowing into the mitochondria. But it, right, it right. A, but yeah, if, if, if AMP kinase isn't getting the signal, then that whole chain of events is. Right. Right, exactly, and and but but the but the turning off of the SCD one is a very important function of AMP kinase because, interestingly, um, and so th and this is where, <laughs> I mean, this is what I love about biology. It, it you know it keeps you thinking and it keeps you guessing, right? So yeah, I've been thinking a lot about. Well, I <laughs> I went on uh, uh, David Gornoski's show with um, with Ray Pete actually. It's on my to watch list. Yeah, well, it's fine. But but one of the things, and actually it was a previous, um, we had like a Omega-6 panel with um, a bunch of us and uh, and Ray Pete was on there. And, and one of the things he said was um, that the problem with PUFA is it actually, it, it goes into the mitochondria too fast. And that's what causes reductive stress. Um, that's what Ray Pete said. And I said, well, that is very interesting because, you know, typically just as you say, things like, um, PPAR alpha is, you know, the master regulator of fat burning. It, uh, it increases CPT one. And I'm pretty sure that AMP kinase directly stimulates PPAR alpha, which then stimulates P CPT one is really what happens. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and I was like, well, if Ray Pete is right that, you know, flooding the mitochondria with fat causes reductive stress, um, which is a reasonable assertion because, um, you know, uh, fat is full of acetyl groups. And so if you can shuttle enough fat into the mitochondria, quickly and do beta oxidation, you're creating a ton of acetyl groups, which is ultimately the cause of reductive stress, right? So if that builds up too fast and you're not generating enough NAD plus, um, very quickly, you're going to have an overload of acetyl-CoA, which is what leads to all the reductive stress, right? And so, so I started looking into it and then I found out that in, <laughs> they did a study in, I don't know, it was 2008 or something. Maybe it was after that, 2012, doesn't matter. But um, they realized that in mice, they could put them into torpor just by um, giving them uh, a, a PPAR activator, a PPAR alpha activator, right? So all they're doing is they're artificially, they're giving them this drug, which increases CPT1 and increases the rate at which fat is entering the mitochondria. And that puts the mice into reductive stress. But <laughs> then I went into the materials and methods of the paper. And of course the diet that the mice were on, you know, half of the calorie or half of the fat calories were from corn oil. Hmm. And so then I was like, okay, I get it. So if you can, if you can flood the mitochondria with unsaturated fats, then you're going to create reductive stress, put things into torpor, etc. Right. But if the thing that is um, stimulating PPAR alpha is um, 
amp kinase, amp kinase is turning off SCD, SCD1 at the same time that it's increasing flow into the mitochondria. And so, so amp kinase is saturating mm-hmm. and sending in the fat faster. Whereas to put the mice into torpor, they gave them a PPA or alpha activator and they fed them corn oil, you know? And so you see, it's like, it's not just how fast it goes in. It's also how saturated it is. And there's re- it's just really interesting interplay and dynamics between all that. And it's hard to understand, but. <laughs> yeah. And I think at least from my perspective, what, the, what would come short is I can see flooding it causing reductive stress. But once like we're talking about, like we go into like a hibernation type metabolism, it's no longer flooding in. It's all acetylated and it's all, I think of it as like a log jam. <laughs> well, it is, it is a log jam. And, 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 and so, right. And, and interestingly, what happens is, so you can use the, you know, the PPA or alpha uh, activator to force to, to, clear to create initial reductive stress. Yes. But then when you're in reductive stress over time, your CPT levels drop and your PPA or alpha levels drop. And which is of course what happens once the animal's in hibernation, because once you get there, then it's like, okay, well, we're going to turn off. Exactly. We're going to turn off that burning because we're trying to conserve our fat exactly. stores now for winter. Right. And so, so torpor has all these different stages and it's sort of unclear which one we're in. We're sort of still hyperphagic, but we're also, we've also already downregulated. Right. <laughs> That's why in that study, when you mentioned the, the mice, I, I was just wondering if they like continue the PPAR. I call it PPAR alpha. Just that's how I've always read it. In my sure. Head. Yeah. It's, it's funny how people, <laughs> uh, if, you, if you keep that going, I would imagine like it would hard be hard for them, for the mice to stay in, in hibernation. If you keep pumping fat burning. through them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they stop once they actually, I think they just do it for like two yeah, weeks to get it started. But it, but it puts them over the, it puts them into torpor in the first place, you know, yeah. and it's a nice conversation. And so, and then again, um, this guy, Cody Smith at North Carolina, who I already mentioned, he just did a study, I think it was 2021 or even 2022 that came out where um, he took a mice. He must be thinking very much along the same lines as I am because he did the, the study about um, NNT. And then his next study, he overexpressed PPAR alpha in mice. And the mice have like whole body reductive stress. And they're ple- they're completely glucose intolerant, and he and then what he did was he took um, this is actually this is actually very interesting. He took he took catalase, which is another um, it's another um, what am I calling it? Uh, the uh, antioxidant that the body makes, but usually it's only in peroxisomes, and so he made a construct so that he could overexpress catalase in the mitochondria of these mm. mice. And so he made a version of this mice that's overexpressing PPAR alpha and catalase in the mitochondria. And so the thing about these mice was they, you know, they were, they had massive oxidative stress and they had signs of reductive stress. And so he was like, well, you know, what's causing their problems? Is it the oxidative stress or is it the reductive stress ultimately that's driving the oxidative stress and so using the catalase in the mitochondria he was able to reverse the oxidative stress interesting um and it fixed some of their issues 
but not all. They were still had severe um, uh, reductive stress and, um, you know, I think glucose, they, they couldn't uptake glucose. They still had glucose issues and all these other issues. And so, and that was just presumably from upregulating CPT1. And so there really is this idea that like you, you don't want, like, even though, <laughs> right. You can also give humans that are diabetics um, clofibrate, which is a PPAR activator. And, and that has really beneficial effects on liver fat and other things. And so when you're fully in torpor, you probably aren't making enough PPAR alpha, but on the other hand, <laughs> just <laughs> stimulating a whole bunch of PPAR alpha sometimes can put you really into reductive stress. And so there's a balance there, right? You don't want to right. flood the engine. It's yeah. like, it's like hitting the, it's like the dumb neighbor kid that would come over when I was trying to start my ATV and he would just be like jamming the throttle. I mean, you can't jam the throttle, you know, and it, it just floods the engine. Right. So, so it's like, you just, there's just, there's a, there's a real complex dynamics happening there at the point of like how fast the fat should enter the mitochondria. And interestingly, um, last point on this, um, alpha linolenic acid, the omega-3 is a fairly potent PPAR alpha activator mm -hmm. and linoleic acid also activates PPAR alpha. So the, so the PUFA <laughs> are kind of like pushing their own throttle and they're highly, um, preferentially oxidized, right? They're highly. And so, so, um, and they're so highly oxidized that if you, you know, go to Google Scholar and you type carbon recycling and PUFA, what happens is when you eat, um, let's say you eat flaxseed oil, which is all alpha linolenic acid, which is an omega-3, it's the 18 carbon omega-3 polyunsaturated fat. Um, polyunsaturated fat, when we eat it, especially alpha linolenic acid, is immediately sent into the mitochondria, broken all the way down to, to acetyl-CoA and then rebuilt into palmitic acid. Like we literally break it all the way down and then we rebuild it into saturated fat. And that's what happens to 85% of it. You know, 15% of it gets elongated into longer chain omega-3s or right. goes here or there. But almost all of it is like immediate, like within five minutes, of consuming a bunch of it that's radio labeled, you can find um, radio labeled palmitic acid all over the body because it's 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 stimulating PPR alpha. It's actually preferentially grabbed by CPT1. It's flooding into the mitochondria. It's all being broken down with acetyl CoA. So now you've created reductive stress just by eating a bunch of alpha linolenic acid. And so the reductive stress, the acetyl-CoA builds up, that kicks on um, de novo lipogenesis. And all of a sudden, the acetyl-CoA is being cranked back out as, as palmitic acid. Saturated fat. <laughs> and no other fat does that, you know? And this is like, it's so funny because there's like, there's like 12 papers about this that all came out between like 98 and like 2006. And then like, people just stop talking about it entirely. And you're like, how does that happen? This is such an interesting topic. And like no one, they did one study in humans and they were like, yep, it's true in humans. And then 
that was the last study ever done. <laughs> You're like, but shouldn't there be ramification? I feel like we should be talking about this. This is a big deal, guys, but nobody passed the torch to you, Brad. <laughs> I guess so. this is yours. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm talking about it. So yes, it turns out that we rapidly recycle polyunsaturated fat back into saturated fat, which is interesting on a lot of different levels, but mostly to me, it's interesting because you can't, the only way my understanding of how de novo lipogenesis works is the only way that's possible is if all of that is sent into the mitochondria gets beta oxidized and you essentially create reductive stress so that de novo lipogenesis kicks in and it starts cranking out, you know, saturated fat to get rid of the reductive stress in the mitochondria. Right. Um, that's my understanding of it works. And so I think that these vegetable oils acutely cause reductive stress. And sure, once they put you into full on torpor, then the dynamics change a little bit. And maybe at that point, it's a good idea to stimulate PBR alpha, but it's, you know, it's a complex dynamic. And one of the things I was researching a little bit after reading your blog was this idea that we'll just say NAD plus is kind of like this limiting factor that's keeping us kind of torpored, you know, and basically we need to get out of this. We need NAD plus. Uh, and I was like, well, what is causing like what depletes NAD plus? And it seems like CD38 is a, like a big kind of like regulator of NAD plus levels. Yes. And I was like, what about CD838 inhibitors? And, but I, I say this because I kind of went down a CD838 rabbit hole. I'm like, this does a lot of different things. It does. So I'm not like, I don't know if we want to like inhibit that. Uh, but well, so no, I, I, this, I thought a lot about this myself. And, and, and so in, um, so I actually have probably two articles from now coming up on the blog is I'm going to again, be talking about, you know, so there's these things called obesogens and the one thing that they all have in common, um, specifically, I'm talking about one called tributyltin, um, which was like a, a paint, a paint they used to put on the hulls of boats to like keep barnacles off. Mm. And there's one called, um, well, BPA, which is in plastic, plastic lined soup cans. And it's in most of our food. It's in the micro, it's in the microplastics, which are literally apparently in our bloodstream. Yep. Um, <laughs> so there's BPA, which is obviously well known. And the other one is this one called um, uh, dioxins. Uh, there's one called TCDD, but they're also like the PCBs that are like industrial runoff that are like in the Hudson River, I know is a highly contaminated with PCBs. I'm sure the Great Lakes are. Um, PCBs are in they're in beef, they're in like, they get in the air from industrial smoke and then they come down in the rain and they're in the grass, like they're, they're kind of, they call them forever chemicals because their half-life is like 500 years. And so they're in the atmosphere, they were all released during the industrial revolution and, and, and now they're just kind of a ubiquitous part of life, right? That we all consume them and, uh, and on some quantity. Right. Um, and so anyway, so these things are all known obesogens and what they all have in common is that they trigger, um, they all trigger various of the nuclear super 
nuclear receptor superfamily, which are things like things called like the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which I've talked a lot on the blog. Um, yep. Bisphenol A triggers the um, uh, blah, 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 the steroid X receptor, and tributylsin triggers PPAR gamma. And interestingly, uh, P- both PPAR gamma and um, the steroid X receptor both upregulate CD38 directly. Mm. And their hydrocarbon receptor um, upregulates, uh, I believe it's called PARP, um, which is another right. enzyme that the, the PARP is involved in DNA repair, um, but it's another enzyme that burns NAD. And so all of the obesogens are basically directly upregulating other enzymes that are competing for NAD plus. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And so interestingly, and the other thing I just found out that I haven't gone followed it more is that PPA or alpha indeed also upregulates um, a cytochrome, one of the cytochrome uh, P450s, which are like involved in detoxification. But one of the things that they do is they oxidize the one uh, vegetable oils yeah, exactly. and the oxidized vegetable oils in turn stimulate PPR gamma. Yeah. And so PPR alpha itself. So PPR alpha is stimulated by vegetable oils. It then goes out and upregulates the enzyme that oxidizes the vegetable oils, which then go out and stimulate PPR gamma, which upregulates CD38. And so, you know, you, you see these weird interconnected loops, um, happening yeah but they all kind of end with downregulating NAD plus like that's the commonality between the obesogens and vegetable oil yep and i mean you bring up a good thing point is one of my questions i had to ask you about kind of because a lot of your work focuses on not like we're eating these vegetable oils but not so there's some people that just think they're oxidized and because we're eating oxidized vegetable oils, that, that it's bad. Right. From, I would say, I almost said from our perspective, your perspective is like you eat these independent if they were oxidized previously. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. No, they're still bad. Like the fundamental problem with them is not that they're oxidized or that they oxidize. You know, the fundamental problem is that, well, they're, you know, Animals know to eat them when they want to induce torpor, right? Like it's all built into just the unsaturation level. Like that's how we oxidize things, you know, and the, and the whole thing, like I say, that I just stumbled across a couple of weeks ago, but when I find out things about the, you know, carbon recycling and then the fact that, that, um, you know, PPA or alpha upregulates cytochrome, you know, P450 number four, uh, you know, it just all, again, it's, it's more positive feedback loops. And, and that's what I keep finding is like, okay, well, this is, you know, they're all adding together and the common denominator seems to be this regulation of NAD plus, but. So when linoleic acid are, you know, we, we get oxidation, we get these oxalams, nine hode, 13 hode, uh, HNE. Right these seem to be bad in other contexts. So we, we were kind of talking about metabolic health, obesity. It seems like this also bridges into 
other problems have you touched on like have you dug into those or you know i uh i haven't that much i mean the only the the extent to which i've dug into them is to the extent that i'm interested in so um all of these things I and mean, maybe not for h and e um you know tucker goodrich has done a ton of work on 4 H and E. So, you know, uh, he's probably the, the, the best source of information on that subject. Um, but what I'm really interested about them is <sighs> vegetable oils do oxidize on their own. There's an auto oxidation thing that, that happens, right? But when we're talking about things like uh, nine hoed and, um, 15 heat, um, all of these oxylipins, I guess, um, would be the broad category. Um, you know, they're, all those things are all specifically made with enzymes, right? And those enzymes are controlled mostly by, uh, things in the nuclear receptor superfamily. So they're controlled by things like they are a hydrocarbon receptor and the steroid X receptor and PPR alpha and PPR gamma. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. Yep. Uh, the liver X receptor and the retinoid X receptor. And, you know, there's like, uh, there's like 20 of them or 25 yep. of them. I can't, I can't even name them all. Um, and those things and NRF too. So, so all of the, so interestingly, all of these enzymes, especially the era hydrocarbon receptor, NRF2, and uh, there's another one that I'm spacing on, um, maybe the steroid X receptor, are all involved in detoxification broadly. And so, you know, the reason that the, um, so the reason that the era hydrocarbon receptor is upregulated by um, dioxins is that their hydrocarbon receptor upregulates all of these enzymes that can oxidize the dioxins and break them down and get rid of them. Yep. Right. And so, so it's, it's the, it's the job of these enzymes to kind of keep us safe from environmental toxins. Yep. Right. And so that's why they, that's why they exist. But one of the things that they also do is they oxidize the vegetable oils. And then you're, and it's right. And so now you're in another positive feedback loop because the vegetable oils are, <laughs> once they get oxidized, they're now activators of PPR gamma, which is itself a nuclear receptor superfamily member. And the PPR gamma is probably upregulating its own cytochromes. And, you know, the cycle just keeps repeating itself. And again, and they're all stealing NAD plus. Um, and so, you know, to me, the, um, I think there are a lot of people who are thinking about vegetable oil and just going, oh, well, it's oxidizing all the time. And that is true. But um, a lot of the specific, you know, oxidized compounds of the vegetable oil that you see in the body are actually, you know, your enzymes doing it. Did that. They're doing it and they're doing it in a very controlled way as part of this larger system. And one of the effects of that system is it's stealing your NAD plus. Um, so, <laughs> you know. exactly. Yeah. So, 
one thing I got to talk to you about, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I got to talk to you about the, the China study diet, lifestyles, and mortality in China, 1983, you turned me on to this and <laughs> to me, I'm going through it, the data. It's a fascinating I'm, coffee table book, isn't it? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's monstrous, uh, <laughs> but it's so fascinating because we don't need to go all into the calorie in calorie out versus X, Y, Z, but you see statistics and ones that you highlighted on, on the blog, uh, Nanayan versus who, uh, who I'm going to say these, these countries. Yeah. I don't know what they are either. Okay. Nanayan eating almost 3,600 calories. These are 122 pound Chinese. Yeah. Who eating 1800 calories. 125 pound Chinese. <laughs> yeah. For, one thing I wish was clear was first of all, 3,600 calories is a lot. As I, myself, I don't eat anywhere near that. And I'm, you know, 160 pounds. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm probably taller than them. But regardless, these distri- discrepancies are gigantic. Uh, oh, yeah. And the one thing that, you know, the quote that you, pull out the least active Chinese consumed 30% more calories than their average American counterparts yet weighed 20% less. The excess calories are lost as heat rather than stored as fat. Like to me, that's like the conclusion of like the problem. Right. Right. And, and so, and so when, but when you look at, when you look at those people, they have, and this is true of, and I've written a lot about this in the blog, as you probably know, but this is true of all, societies that live almost entirely on starch. Um, I talked about one in a very recent article um, about metabolic rate. I think it was in response to Herman Ponzer's burn. And great so, post. Yep. yeah. And so th- they went to Thailand and they did a, you know, like a dietary analysis. And it was like, of their calories were carbohydrate calories. I mean, it was 84% and fat was like 6% and protein was, you know, 15 or 12 or whatever the difference, you know? And so, um, and so that is, you know, a lot of people around the world eat just that diet, you know, just white rice basically, or just, you know, whatever the local starch is just manioc. Right. right? And the Tsimani, in, in Bolivia is another example of this. They're just eating starch. They're eating plantains and manioc, right? And so you've got these Thai rice farmers and you've got these people in the Amazon and they're all just eating starch and they have these extraordinarily high metabolic rates. I mean, the, the female Thai rice farmers, it's the highest metabolic rate that I've ever seen measured in any group of humans, right? Uh, you know, when, when they adjusted for lean body mass. Right. Um, and then, and then when you look at the, the body fat composition of these starch eating peoples, it's very saturated. Yep. So, you know, <laughs> ironically, the thing about eating meat is that meat has a lot of monounsaturated fat in it and even a fair amount of polyunsaturated fat, depending on what the meat is. And so the effect of the effect of eating meat, right, which we've been told is like, it's bad because it's so much saturated fat. But the effect of eating the meat is that your body fat becomes less saturated. And that's like the great irony that like, I I sort of like, 
don't want to say it out loud because I'm like, this is going to make people's heads explode. Right. But it's true. Right. Right. Like starch eaters, at least if, you know, if your mother was a starch eater and she was healthy and you were born into that culture and your metabolism is set up right um, and you've eaten starch your whole life, you're going to have an extraordinarily high metabolic rate. Um, And, you know, uh, Americans have always had, have never had as high a metabolic rate as, you know, these rice eating people in Thailand. Um, and, and our fat has always been less saturated than them. And, and what's funny is that <laughs> um, the paper, the paper that I use on my blog to point this out was done in like 1962. And they went to, um, they went to a tribe, um, a couple tribes in uh, somewhere in Africa. And I, I can't remember exactly where, and they were eating like, I think they were eating sorghum, there was one tribe that was eating sorghum and there was, which is like a relatively oily grain, kind of like corn. And there was another tribe, but, but low in overall fat. It's like very low compared to any American diet. And there was another group that was eating more like starchy tubers, which has almost no fat in it. Right. And so, um, so they took the body fat from those two people and they took body fat from Americans. And maybe that was it. I don't remember. I feel like there was one other group, but, Anyway, and, and so the, the African, you know, they were eating starch, had much more saturated fat than the Americans did. And they had the high metabolic rate to go with it, you know, the whole thing. And so, but what I was going to say, why that's ironic is that um, that study was done by, um, I think it was Fred Stair. And he's one of the initial guys, I apologize if I have the name wrong. He's one of the main guys that along with Ansel Keys was pushing... Uh, the idea that we should all be eating more vegetable oil, mm-hmm. right? Because there's too much saturated fat. At the same time, they did this research showing that Americans already had much less saturated fat than these other healthy tribesmen. And so they knew from the beginning right. <laughs> that our fat was less saturated. And they were like, we need to make it even more unsaturated. And you're just like, yeah. <laughs> why? <laughs> and these examples are like perfect for me. So the carbohydrate insulin model, Gary Taubes, where carbs are bad because of insulin. But this to me is like, this is why that's, that model really breaks down here. Because we see these, these right. people that are not obese eating high amounts of carbohydrate. Now I could make an argument that's not the healthiest diet, but from if we're just talking about obesity. Sure, totally. High, high carbohydrate diet, like you said, pure starch with 20% fish or meat or 15% fish and meat. Like these are lean people with high metabolic rates. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I don't necessarily want to eat that diet. And nor, like you say, I don't think it's, you know, an ideal diet from a health perspective, but yeah, if your interest is metabolic, right? Like, bam, there's the way to go. But the problem is if I do that, I know that I have upregulated SCD one because I've done, you know, I did the omega quant test of my blood ratios. You can just test it. And you're like, yep, I definitely have high, I have elevated SCD one. And so, you know, you have to deal with that before you can go back to eating, right. you know, Should whatever. We talk about how to deal with it. Cause I have some, I, there's one thing when I was reading your blog that seemed like 
the elephant in the room. Uh, and so there's a few things. One is this was a perfect time to mention you because you mentioned you eat animals. They are high in monounsaturated fats, saturated fats. And depending on the animal could be high in polyunsaturated fats. And for listeners that don't know, Brad, you make low polyunsaturated fat pork, right? <laughs> yes. So we might as well plug that now because it's a good segue. Yeah. Uh, right. People, so people uh, I have a company called Firebrand Meats. And so, when, you know, one of the reasons that I started thinking all of thinking about all this is that I in my previous life, I ran a um, a, a pastured pig farm and I had a uh, all grass fed uh, butcher shop in, in Ithaca, New York. And what I noticed raising the pigs here, you know, I read a lot of literature about um kind of a nerd i like doing research uh if you hadn't picked that up um but uh, i i would read all these old um they had all these great old swine um science books from like 1886 to like 1930 mm-hmm. um there's a lot of really great research was being done about different ways to like Oh, if you give them pasture, but you feed them, you know, whatever apples, let's see. And, and how much gain do they, how much weight do they gain? Is it efficient? Does it work? So they do all this crazy old research and it's interesting and nobody does that kind of research anymore. Right. So it was really interesting to read those old papers and they have problems. Like they didn't know, understand like uh, limiting amino acids. There's all kinds of stuff they didn't understand back then. So the experiments are flawed, but they're fascinating. And so I was reading all those things, but what you come across is like, it was sort of well known that certain feeds caused soft pork. One of them was chufas or chuffas. I don't know how you say it. C-H-U-F-A. And these are, this is a sedge that grows in the South and it grows a little tuber underground and pigs love them. And so you can grow this field of these tubers and you turn the pigs in and they dig them up and they eat them and they get fat. But it says the fat is soft. Well, it turns out that chufas are high in linoleic acid. And so, and they knew, like, they knew you could feed them peanuts, but that the pork would be soft. Mm -hmm. And then you read and it says, well, American pigs sold at a discount or, you know, American bacon sold at a discount in European markets because the pork was soft. And again, it's because Americans, it's because Europeans back then finished their pigs on barley and Americans finished our pigs on corn and corn has about twice the oil that barley does. And so um, so there's all this great old research. And so then I started raising pigs and I started noticing that like I really could change the firmness of my fat based on what I fed the pigs and based on the breed of the pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, you know, and, and I developed a habit or, you know, uh, probably a, um, I don't know, a psychosis of like every time I go into a meat room, you know, where like pigs are hanging from the rail and getting ready to get cut up in a butcher shop somewhere. Um, I immediately just start poking the back fat to see how firm it is. Like I can't, I can't help myself. Like even if I don't even know whose pigs they are or, and I find myself in a lot of meat rooms. So um, anyway, but, but so very quickly I started to see like, wow, this is makes such a big difference. You know, what you feed them and how it accumulates and, and, and the genetics, right? The genetics makes it like for a little while, I couldn't get the pigs I wanted. So I was buying these more modern lean genetics pigs, um, yep. the long pink pigs. Yep. And those pigs 
no matter what I did, I could not get them to have firm back fat. It didn't matter. I raised them in the same field, same feed, same everything as these like meal foot crosses I was growing. And like, they just, the fat just never got firm ever. Didn't matter what I did. And so I was seeing this interaction, this interaction of genetics and feeds and, you know, my only real, um, thing it was just feeling the firmness ultimately in the, in the cold room. And then eventually I sent in some for testing and I found out it only had uh, 6% polyunsaturated fat. And I knew that, you know, uh, commercial, according to the USDA, commercial pig fat is like more like 10, 11% uh, linoleic acid. And so I was at about half that. So I'm like, that's cool. And so anyway, I don't have that company anymore, but I have a new company called Firebrand Meats. And I'm using a lot of those lessons um, that has sort of informed my research and my thinking about things as I've researched. But now we're, we're making, uh, making pork again. Um, I'm not growing it here. I, I have a guy, um, but he's great. He's like a fifth generation pig farmer. He's brilliant. He's a much better pig farmer than I ever was. Um, and we're actually using, <laughs> this is ironic, and a lot of people are amused by it. To me, it's just a, a good feed for what I want to do, but they make, um, they grow peas. So peas are another traditional uh, feed that they used in, in Northern Europe and in Canada. Uh, Canada was also really known for having uh, firm pork fat and, and they also fed barley and peas. Um, and so uh, it's just the North, corn doesn't grow as well farther North. So people grow barley and peas. Anyway, um, but peas are really low in oil too. And so they grow peas for things like the impossible burger and they go to like a factory in the Midwest and they take out the pea protein. So they make like a pea protein isolate. And that's what the, the like vegan things are made out of this pea protein isolate. But that leaves the starch from the peas as like a powder. And so the guy who grows the pigs for me has a contract for this pea flour, which is basically totally fat free um, that we get from these big, processing facilities in the Midwest. And that's one of the main components of the diets that we feed the pigs so that we can be sure that we're not feeding them any linoleic acid. Um, and so I've gotten that tested. I recently did a test. I sent in some uh, fat from Smithfield pork that I rendered and some of my stuff from Firebrand Meats. Um, and that's all at firebrandmeats.com. And um, my lard was at 6% linoleic acid. And the Smith Steel stuff was at uh, 16% or 17%. Yeah. And my stearic acid was around 14%. And theirs was at like 9%. So, you know, the whole, you really can shift the entire ratio. And the other thing I'm using is I'm using Berkshire pigs. And one of the reasons I'm using Berkshire pigs is that um, compared, so most fatty breeds of pigs, put on a lot of linoleic, or sorry, a lot of oleic acid, monounsaturated fat, right? And partly that's because they have upregulated SCD1 and that's why they get fat in the first place, right? See, so it all, yep. <laughs> it's all consistent, right? So they make a lot of SCD1 and therefore they make a lot of monounsaturated fat. For some reason, I don't know what it is, um, Berkshire is an old fashioned breed of pig. They have great marbling, like dark meat color. It's awesome pork. Um, but for whatever reason, they don't make a lot of monounsaturated fat. And so 
I need to pull that that study back out again that I did, but um, my Berkshire pork is going to be lower in monounsaturated fat than probably most any other pork out there as well. So I, I advertise it as low in polyunsaturated fat, but really it's it's low in overall unsaturated, unsaturated fats and higher in saturated high fats than any acid. other pork out there. High in stearic acid, yeah, and it's probably higher in palmitic acid too. And so um, that's you know obviously that's what I'm going for. That's awesome. Um, I mean, you're making bacon great again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying. <laughs> you can have that as a slogan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so that's that's what I'm doing over at Firebrand Meats. Um, yeah. So that's one of the things. So right. So obviously, you know, the first thing is to change your diet. Like, stop eating unsaturated fats and that is right and and so then you get into the (laughs) it's so funny it's like the things that i'm arguing i feel like are like so extraordinarily controversial because they i like (laughs) i mean the first thing i did first real like big sort of big article that i wrote of course was the croissant diet and and as I was writing it, I was just laughing to myself because I was like, this is just going to piss off everyone. It's going to piss off the vegan or it's, it's going to piss off vegans. It's going to piss off carnivores. It's going to, you know, it's going to piss off people who are keto. It's going to, you know, piss off people who like olive oil, you know, Mediterranean diet, like everyone. Everyone <laughs> but the French. French chefs. The French are going to love you. I love, love I love the design of it. The design was so good because, I mean, you were controlling for variables. Like, you couldn't put the benefit to ketosis, you, could, you know, so it's like. Right. Well, yeah. It, it, I, yes, yeah. That's exactly what I wanted to do, but yeah. Right. There is one question I had about your design of that diet. And knowing you were a student of the China study more specifically the data why flour and not a different starch as flour from maybe is even one of your posts uh is i think in the china study the most correlated food with cardiovascular disease so that's true um that's true however if you look um it's pretty much flat up until about, I want to say like 400 grams a day, and then it inflects upwards. So it's like the the flour in the China Health study to me looks, you know, safe up to a point. And if you eat just flour, then yeah, it's not a good idea. Um, agreed. No, absolutely. Flour is absolutely the thing. Wheat flour in the China Health study is absolutely has the highest correlation with heart disease. Um, no doubt. But I think that's you know, that was people that are literally eating like tons dose dependent, (laughs) 85% of their calories from wheat noodles. Right. And I think that there is a dose dose curve thing there. Um, But ultimately to answer the real answer to the question, of course, is that. um, So the thing that when I first started thinking about all this, um, you know, the thing that was most strongly in my head was the idea that, okay, I knew that, I knew that the Chinese diet of just white rice worked for them. And I knew that, you know, the keto diet worked for a lot of people. And so, 
and I knew that the American diet of, you know, flour with vegetable oil doesn't work. But I also knew that the traditional French and American diets did work for a very long time. And those diets combined flour and potatoes Sugar. with butter and cream and beef and pork. And so, and pretty high sugar, which you didn't know. And pretty high sugar, and pretty high sugar. And so, and when I did the croissant diet, I was using, for a while, instead of croissants, I was making pancakes and I was putting maple syrup on them because, well, the French did and the American did. Um, I'm and glad so, you did that too, because that, that's a segue <laughs> into the Native American discussion. But yeah, yeah sorry. Totally. totally. And so, um, yeah, so what I really wanted to understand was what is the difference? What is the difference between the American diet now and the traditional American diet or the traditional French diet, which have the same macros, right. Right? the same macros. The only thing that's different is the type of fat that we use. And it's not like, you know, people talk about glycemic load and glycemic index. It's like the, the, the French have been eating, the French and Americans have been eating white sugar and white flour since the 1850. And obesity was not, was not a problem until, I don't know, 1970 or 1980, right? So for like a hundred years, it was fine (laughs) until, until vegetable oils went over, you know, whatever, 200 calories a day or something. And that's when everything goes haywire. And so I was like, there's gotta be something different about the composition of those two fats. That's, it's the only thing that's changed. Right. It was something like sunflower oil, like 3X or something like that, where the French in the 70s to the French today, like you're saying, the macros are roughly the same. Yeah. The foods are roughly the same besides, I think it was sunflower oil. Uh, so sunflower oil, yeah. Like a 3X increase and now they're obese like Americans. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, super interesting. <laughs> uh, that made me think, maple syrup, this is the one thing that you talked about. Native Americans did seem to appear to get obese on very high amounts of maple syrup, which initially when I read that, I was like, this invalidates the thesis because okay. high carb, but yeah, I know that we're going to go with the SCD one and insulin, right? With uh, this. Right. Cause my initial reaction was like high carb makes sense. SCD one should actually, uh, should go, excuse me, up to desaturate the, carbohydrate because we don't if we're getting all saturated fat we're eating all carbs de novo lipogenesis saturated fat we need scd1 to desaturate that to maintain the balance right right but you're gonna say that because of insulin right well so what happens is you know for whatever reason and i'm not gonna pretend that i know the answer right now um first off i want to make a minor correction that the native americans did not eat maple syrup they ate maple sugar oh thank you thank you i just probably had that right which just means that they boil it a little bit longer until it crystallizes so it's a crystal rather than a syrup anyway very minor point (laughs) but to answer your question for some reason um diets that are very high in sugar but like very high in sugar, such as only maple sugar, um, dramatically increase SCD1. Um, I don't really know why that is, but they've shown it in mice in the lab. If you feed them 
tons and tons and tons of sugar, you also get like a 10x spike in SCD1. And so, yeah. So in talking about the Native Americans who eat the sugar, I was making a parallel between, you know, the mechanism is the same, which is this increase in SCD1. Um, You can get there by either eating vegetable oil or by eating just sugar. Probably combining vegetable oil and sugar is oh yeah the, bad idea. This is maybe an experiment I'll run on myself because I think the Hadza. I mean they they get a lot of attention now, but I'm, they at times eat very high amounts of honey. I think I think I've like yes. up to sixty percent or something like crazy. Right, no, it's high. I'm like whoa, that's actually super high. But because it's honey, the uh, you know it's a lot of fructose. So maybe the insulin isn't as exaggerated. So maybe the SCD one is not as upregulated in that context. Yeah, and and I think it's you know obviously it's it's multifaceted. You know, and one of the things. <laughs> so, this was a conversation I had on Twitter recently, and I didn't really follow up with it. But one of the things you see when you look at um, so. Hadza don't have particularly high metabolic rates. That's true. Yeah. Um, and so everybody thinks the Hadza should have high metabolic rates. And so Herman Ponser went there and he measured their metabolic rates. And they didn't have, you know, they measured their, their entire energy expenditure over, you know, 10 days or something. And they had the same energy expenditure as Americans do. Um, and everyone was like shocked by this. Exactly. Um, and, and, and to the point that, <laughs> that someone like Ponser who, who did the experiment now, I mean, I just read his book and he kind of throws up his hands and says, well, you know, um, th- there's no, like all metabolic rates are the same because I expected the Hadza to be high because, I had certain ideas that, you know, metabolic rate is primarily controlled by how much exercise that you get. Um, and so therefore I expect the Hatsa who walk a lot to have extraordinarily high metabolic rate and they didn't. And he says, you know, therefore you can't change your metabolic rate sort of thing. And I'm like, okay, but my expectations about what should make a higher metabolic rate are completely different than Ponser's, right? Like I'm thinking like, okay, if I want to find a high metabolic rate, I'm going to go to Thailand. I'm going to find a culture that eats pure starch. I'm not necessarily going to look for people who exercise a lot because I don't think that makes much difference. And if you read Ponser's book, he says, yep, exercise doesn't make any difference um, to your overall caloric burn. And I'm like, that would be exactly my expectation. I'm like, if you want to find metabolic rates, you need to look for the people with the most saturated fat. And the Hadza, who are eating a bunch of honey, are not going to have it, right? You're looking in the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> that is, like, completely lost on – there's a whole, like – you know, there's a whole other thought, of course, I'm sure you're aware of them who are like just pure calories in calories out people. And to them, even the suggestion that, you know, eating pure starch and having more saturated fat changes your metabolic rate is like heresy. It is heresy. They all know that you can't change your metabolic rate because Hadza 
or because Ponser measured the Hatza and it didn't change, and therefore any suggestion that metabolic rate can be different is hogwash, which to me is very reductive logic. It is. I, I think the energy, <laughs> the energy balance model is correct in that the energy is conserved. But, the energy is conserved. But it is getting burned. <laughs> like, I think you make a great argument. Like, we have this increased thermogenesis. The, 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 me the metabolic rate changes. You eat more, metabolic rate goes up. Or like you're saying, the saturated fat, uh, which is controlling the metabolic rate. Like, the energy is conserved in the energy balance model. But how, what happens with that energy is what is different. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And the... And, uh, um, Anyway, well, here's what I was going to say, though. I think the other piece of this is <laughs> one of the main things, the other thing that happens with metabolic rate is the best way to increase, increase your metabolic, if you really want to increase your metabolic rate, all you have to do is eat more. Exactly. And if you really want to decrease your metabolic rate, all you have to do is eat less. It works every time. And so to a large extent, I think that... Um, metabolic rate is actually supply driven. So like if you eat a bunch more, you're going to have a higher metabolic rate. And so, and, and, and the converse is true. And so if you go look at like tribes in Africa that have been uh, through a drought or for whatever reason um, have been having bad crop seasons or are just in a, you know, whatever, a place where the weather's lousy and they just can't grow enough per acre or whatever. And so they have limited caloric intake. They inevitably have a low metabolic rate, even if, you know, even if they're eating pure starch and their diet matches the people that I would argue should have the highest metabolic rates, but if calories are limited, they're going to have a low metabolic rate. And so, and so for that reason, um, metabolic rate is somewhat supply driven. And so another reason that the Hadza, uh, might have a low metabolic rate is simply that, you know, they're going to work reasonably hard to get the calories that they can, yep. but they're probably never going to have the same access to calories as, you know, a Thai rice farmer who's in a rainy climate who can probably put up bumper crops every year and they essentially have an unlimited supply supply of calories. Yeah. And so they're going to eat more and that's going to push their metabolic rate higher, which is what should happen, right? Like if you eat more calories, your metabolic rate should go up. And I actually have been reading this. <laughs> there's a series of fascinating articles. Um, done in this maybe early 80s maybe late 70s to early 80s of this um the guru walla it's called i think g-u-r-u-w-a-l-l-a something like that um the tribe in africa where you know for the men would do this when they were like 18 um it was kind of a like as a display of their wealth and their rank they would basically go through this fattening um, procedure where they would eat like 10,000 calories. I mean, this one guy that they studied, they said was literally eating like 12 and a half thousand calories every day. 
And, and the goal is to, is to fatten up so that you can show that you're from wealth and stature and then you get a wife. Right. Yep. And, um, and so, uh, <laughs> anyway, when you look at the, the amount of calories, these guys are like, so they're eating 12, you know, you're like, okay, well, if you do the math and you're like, well, 3,500 calories should add a pound of fat. Right. right. So in theory of reading 12,000 calories every day, you should be adding on like four pounds of fat. Well, in reality, he was adding like a hundred grams of fat a day, which is like a quarter of a pound. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or maybe it was 200 grams, but it wasn't, it was, you know, <laughs> somewhere in there, it was like 6,000 calories was just magically disappearing every day. And it's right. like, where does it go? And then of course, you know, after they, and they do, and he, this one guy had done this, you know, these fattenings go on for like six months. And I think this one guy had like done one and then immediately gone into a second one. So he'd been doing it for like nine months of this, just like, intentional massive overeating and then you know they went back for a follow-up and i think it was like three years later and the guy was literally back to exactly his starting weight before like he was like within a kilogram of his starting weight before starting this massive fattening and so i mean he did gain you know what i don't know 30 kilograms or something yeah um but then as soon as he stopped intentionally overeating it just all came off. And of course he wasn't eating any vegetable oil. The foods were like a sorghum bread and whole milk. Basically that was, yeah. that was what there was some kind of porridge too, but it was, I think it was all from made from this sorghum. It was all sorghum and milk basically or sorghum right. and dairy. Um, and so it's all either starch or it's saturated fat. And you know, the, your metabolic rate will change based on how many calories you eat. Um, But obviously that has stopped happening in America. Um, But, but that's how it should work in a, in a healthy, in a non hibernating metabolism. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be how it is now. (laughs) Right. In America. Right. It's not, something's wrong. So I I think this is probably a good place to be like, we're hibernating metabolisms, solutions to getting out. You have, well, I think of it as kind of two ways. We talked about like the ROS theory, which is like, we want to create ROS. So you have stearic acid, long chain, 18 carbon, saturated fat, where you you have a butter where you basically, you eat straight stearic acid and you put it like in coffee or something, it turns into like a wax and it's hard to eat. So you you melt it into like a butter (laughs) so you can increase stearic acid content believe me i've done some of these experiments on myself yeah <laughs> uh, then the other side of the equation is scd1 which there's various things you can do to try and like diff- different kind of herbal things prescription things like metformin various things that will decrease scd1 so we're pulling these kind of two levers right uh, right you, exactly you have a number of like products at uh on your website that help pull both these levers, right? Right, right. I do. And so, right. And so I sell, like you say, the, um, the powdered stearic acid, which is just, a, um, you can use it in a lot of things. I mean, some, I've heard of some people just blend it into like a smoothie and eat it that way. And it, it's kind of weird. It's like a little bit gritty, but people say they've gotten good results from it. So like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to knock it. Um, no. <laughs> so that's right. And the stearic acid is just, it's the longest chain saturated fat. It's, 
it's going to drive the most ROS production. Um, and it maybe is special. There was a, it's called the banana milkshake study, but people put stearic acid into, well, basically a banana milkshake and, and they, um, they went on like a low fat vegan diet for two days and they, um, they took blood from the people and they stained the, um, the white blood cell, uh, of the cell. So you can see the mitochondria. And after the two days of the vegan diet, the mitochondria are, um, what do I want to say? They're, they're broken up into like small little distinct balls. And then they have the, the banana shake with all the stearic acid. And then like six hours later, um, all of their mitochondria have like fused into these long um, webs of mitochondria, which is apparently what mitochondria do when they're actively burning fat and generating a lot of ROS. They make these like long networks of mitochondria. So it's a cool study um, because uh, um, it just, because the, the, the visual picture of the mitochondria <laughs> is stunning, but it also shows that in, in actual, you know, walking around humans, um, stearic acid does make this, uh, you know, very specific difference within a matter of hours, you know? Um, so, so that's really cool. Uh, I have the stearic acid for sale. Um, if you just Google the banana milkshake study, I think you'll find my blog article about that paper. Which is a good article. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so that's the banana milkshake study. Um, yes. And so then I have the, um, uh, something called sterculi oil, which is interesting, right? So this is from a tropical nut. And it just so happens that one of the fats in it has this, it, it's basically a, just a saturated fat, but it has this ring structure right where the, um, right where the active site of SCD1 is. And so a little bit of that, you know, when the SCD1 tries to desaturate it, it can't get in there and do it. And so it ends up blocking the SCD1. Um, It appears to be pretty safe. You know, these nuts are eaten regularly in India. um, uh, If you search for Sterculia nuts, you know, for sale at market on YouTube, you can find videos of like, you know, farmers markets with people selling these nuts in, in Indian markets. There's videos of people like with a, there's one where there's like a tree and it's in front of like a courthouse and the guy's like, look, here's how you just cool your nut. And he walks open and cracks them open and peels it and eats it, you know? So, so these are normal, this tree grows all over the tropics. Um, it's in, it's in, it grows in Mexico. It grows through, you know, tropical, uh, yeah. America's, Africa, Asia, everywhere, basically. Um, it's widely consumed as a human food. So I think, I think the safety profile is good. And um, it is interestingly that like little ring structure, even though it's totally saturated, it has a texture like a vegetable oil, even though there's almost no polyunsaturated fat in it, right. or really very little unsaturated fat at, at all. It's mostly the, the um, cyclopropene fat. Um, Anyway, uh, so that is another way it is a totally natural, you know, inhibitor of the enzyme SCD1, which I think we're all making too much of. Well, maybe not all of us, but many of us are making too much of. Um, And then I also introduced um, something called succinate. So this is a natural um, succinate supplement. And so um, (laughs) the, the, 
the reason, you know, we briefly touched on the mitochondrial bottleneck. So what happens in the mitochondria is electrons are entering the electron transport chain, both from complex one and complex two. And the amount of electrons that come back out through reverse electron flow and, and form superoxide is controlled by how many electrons are entering through complex two. And so complex, you know, complex two really creates that bottleneck in, yep. and controls how much superoxide is being produced. And so succinate um, enters its electrons directly into complex two. <laughs> so succinate is sort of a water soluble um, option that has the same kind of has the same mechanism of action of stearic acid, which is to increasing, you know, increasing that flow through complex two to, to generate superoxide. Um, you know, it's going to be a little different because primarily because um, succinate is going to be absorbed into different tissues than the stearic acid is. Um, in mouse studies, <laughs> people have only... <laughs> tried and I don't even really know why they started doing it but um, they've only tried succinate supplementation in the last like I don't know four or five years there's been a, there's been a, a growing number of studies where they're giving succinate to these mice and like the results are unbelievable <laughs> like rapid weight loss um, so another physiological thing that happens if you're obese is that um your muscle fibers switch to this type called um, glycolytic. So you have like, uh, there's all these different muscle fiber types. Some of them use a lot of oxygen and some of them do not. And, and um, there's like a type 2B fiber and a type 2A. I forget exactly which ones they are. But mostly in obese people, you have the type of muscle fiber that doesn't use a lot of oxygen. It's mostly just doing like, they call them slow twitch fibers um they're not you know they're not the best whereas something about eat, tr eating succinate when they feed these mice succinate um it literally switches their muscle fibers over to i think it's type 2a which is the type that is fast twitch and burns oxygen but it also can do glycolytic it's like it's like a really banging muscle type that you probably <laughs> want and uh, I'm doing a bad job of explaining it because I can't actually remember the details myself. But um, but so that's one of the things that happen is they have this this conversion of their of their of their actual muscle fibers. Um, like I say, they lose weight, their metabolic rate goes up. Like you know, all of the things that we talk about should happen, you actually see happen in the mice when you feed them succinate. And so it's succinate's a weird like so yeah, it's a little. It, I think the dose you need was too big to, I mean, if you put it into capsules, you'd have to take like 12 of them. And so it's water soluble. So yep. it kind of has a funny, bitter taste <laughs> and the, the succinate itself is very sour. So I kind of made it into this like lemonade kind of drink. It doesn't taste great, but it doesn't but taste horrible. It's worth it for fat loss and good muscle. Yeah. Really. I just chug it down in the morning and it's great. You know, um, uh, I don't know if it's great, but it, it's fine. <laughs> 
um, yeah, I put in about eight ounces scoop and like eight ounces of water and shoot that two or three times a day uh, is probably what you want to do there. Um, and so that's that's kind of the latest thing. And um, and I maybe and the other thing I've been talking about on my blog a lot, and this is very interesting, is um, something called alpha lipoic acid. So alpha lipoic acid is a common ish supplement. It's been on the market forever. People have known things. Yeah. (laughs) And it's very funny to me because, um, I started thinking about it because people, um, kept using it as an antioxidant, like in all these different trials, people would be like, well, you know, we tried this and we compared it to the antioxidant alpha lipoic acid. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't terribly interested in anti adding antioxidants, but every time when they use alpha lipoic acid as the control, the alpha lipoic acid just had these great results. Right. And finally I was like, what is going on with this stuff? I'm like, how can an ant like, to me, it does not make sense that an antioxidant should have any of the effects that I'm seeing with this stuff. Right. But I keep seeing it time and again. And so I started looking into it and it turns out, that what the alpha lipoic acid does is it actually, so one, we make alpha lipoic acid and it's a, and it's a cofactor for some of the most crucial enzymes in the TCA cycle, uh, such as pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is a, a crucial enzyme. Um, and so it doesn't work without lipoic acid. So, but more to the point, when you eat it, um, it gets fairly rapidly. It's well absorbed yep. into most of the tissues of the body. Um, and the R version of it goes into the nucleus and the other version goes into the cytoplasm. And then both of them get rapidly oxidized by NADH and the NADH gets oxidized back to NAD plus, And then within an hour or two, the lipoic acid just gets uh, broken down and, it gets released or yeah, secreted into the urine. And so it's the, it kind of has this very short half-life. Um, but it, it's basically oxidizing NADH back to NAD plus. And so it's, it's sort of directly giving you NAD plus back. It can give you You the leptin sensitivity back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, And so, um, so it's, it's great. And I'm, I'm just kind of starting um, well, I've been using it for a couple of weeks. Um, and I'm kind of like, I've kind of been upping my dose a little bit. I started with a little bit and, and I'm hoping that this gives me, um, pretty continued weight loss. So we'll see jury's still out on that. Um, or maybe, you know, and I've considered, well, yeah. And I, I have also, there's another, just talking about things that I've thought about, um, that I haven't necessarily tried, but they're things people can try if they want to think about some other supplements. Um, there's one called apigenin or apigenin. I don't know how you say it, but it's A-P-I-G-E-N-I-N. It comes from um, those little flowers that people make tea out of, chamomile. I think it comes from chamomile blossoms. Anyway. Um, Par- parsley. Parsley, right. I knew I had this written down. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because it's, and so uh, what... It- what it does is exactly what you suggested is it inhibits CD38. And so it, it stops CD38 from, yeah, from stealing your NAD plus. So 
it could work in conjunction with something like, well, really any of the other supplements, alpha lipoic acid or stearic acid or whatever, you know, they're all kind of, like I said, the bottom, the common denominator in all of these things really is generating NAD plus. Right. Um, and so uh, that's another way to do it, right. Is to block CD 38. And there's a couple other ones. My concern with, so apigenin is a, um, a, a flavone or a flavone, whatever it's yeah. called, I think. My concern with the flavones, and I, I don't know if this is true with apigenin, but there was a study I was looking at in, um, uh, with another, with a citrus flavone. And it was inhibiting certain enzymes that use NAD+. Like, I, I think the reason that it blocks CD38 is, I think that it is shaped kind of like NAD+. Um, but I think that might also interfere with other parts of NAD+, metabolism. Yeah. So even though it's shown good results, like in a lab in mice, I'm that's my concern with some of these flavones. Like, I think quercetin also blocks CD38. But that's my concern with those flavones is I feel like they may have other effects with NAD plus metabolism. So I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm on the fence about them. They might be great. I don't know. That's so um, funny. Reading your blog has trained my brain to go in the same direction as yours. Cause that's, <laughs> I was like, hey, have we tried these CD38 inhibitors, epigenin, <laughs> quercetin, which right. parsley, dill, and red onion, which I have not experimented with myself, but Right. To, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Right. And so you know, and obviously, like these are things that people eat. I mean, chamomile, parsley. Which I feel right? like is not... relatively safe on the safety spectrum. Right. You'd, you'd think so, right? And so, so that's something you could do. Um, this is a very interesting one, and I actually got this from um, the Cody Smith paper. So when he was um, when he was doing his experiment with. Um, with NNT to show, you know, uh, how NNT, you know, is recycling all the NAD plus and how that's controlling the metabolic rate of the cell. Um, he was titrating with, he, to, to get the maximum metabolic rate of the cell, he was titrating with, um, uh, carnitine, L-carnitine. And it turns out that what, so what l one of the things that L-carnitine does, L-carnitine is necessary to, um, to bring fat into the cell. And so you have this triglyceride and then it becomes an acyl carnitine when it gets transferred through the mitochondrial membrane. And then when it gets to the inside, it's transferred to uh, the L-carnitine gets replaced with CoA and it becomes an acyl CoA that goes into the mitochondria and the acyl-CoA becomes acetyl-CoA and the acetyl-CoA is what gets burned in the TCA cycle. But it turns out if there's extra carnitine around, what it does is it pulls, it, it, it uh, replaces the CoA groups on the acetyl-CoA, it converts them back to acyl or acetyl-carnitine mm -hmm. and the acetyl-carnitine gets sequestered back into the cytoplasm. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically, you know, when I was talking about one of the problems with like polyunsaturated fats is you get this 
buildup of acetyl-CoA in the mitochondria, the carnitine can help actually pull some of the extra fuel out of the furnace to try to get the air mixture right and get yep. the furnace burning more cleanly. Right. Um, so that's another interesting one. Uh, that's interesting. That could be worth trying. And, and it's had pretty good success in clinical trials. You know, nothing that's like on its own, you know, it's not a grand slam. It's like a, it's like a single or a double, you know, it's pretty good, yeah, yeah. but you haven't won the game yet, but you're like, well, that's, the, they've had some success with it, you know? Yeah. And I think the same thing is true of, of alpha lipoic acid. When you look at it, a weight loss trials, people have on average lost weight with it, but it's like, you know, it's like two kilograms or something, you know, it's not, it's not like, it's not like people have lost 40 pounds just with alpha lipoic acid. But again, there's like a lot of things that are kind of like pointing in the right direction and, maybe we just need to figure out like which three all kind of work together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hibernating. This is, this one's shaking you two hands really shaking you. Right. Yeah. Three is like, all right, we're waking you up out of hibernation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's fun and obviously there's a lot of different, you know, there's always new things that pop up and sometimes I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. And a lot, you know, nine times out of the 10, I'm like, yeah, no, that's a bad idea. Yeah. And they all, you know, and they all, I'm sort of, <laughs> for a while, I was very interested in things that upregulated NRF2. Um, I've gone away from that direction a little bit for a couple of reasons. One is that NRF2 interacts with all of those. Um, the ARI hydrocarbon. So NRF2 can upregulate the ARI hydrocarbon receptor, right. which in turn can upregulate SCD1 and like all the bad things, oxidize the PUFA. Um, and the other one is I see now that the, um, that upregulation of NRF2 can be associated with, you know, rising overall pool of glutathione, which, right to me starts to look like reductive stress. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about it because certainly, uh, you know, having more UCP three is not a bad thing. Um, but you know, I'm more interested in like maximizing the, the NNT system and getting, my enzymes deacetylated, I think, before I'm worried about UCP3. <laughs> it almost seems like that would be a natural consequence. If you get all this deacetylated, we get everything running as it should. We have this all this energy. We got to get rid of it. Okay, how are we going right. to get rid of it? Thermogenesis, maybe more energy, like non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So you're right. active, you're hot, you're, you're energetic. So Yeah, exactly. So my one big question I, I had for you is... And you haven't suggested this anywhere on the blog, but when I read everything, this is the experiment I want to do. I want okay. to take everyone overbeast, torpor, high SCD1, uh, and lower metabolic rate. Basically, they're stuck. And this is not a fun experiment for them, but I want to, I'll call it crash diet. I want to diet them down to lean. Okay, no more sure. obesity. And then I'll have a couple arms 
a starch eating arm like the so starch right sure then another arm basically carnivore diet ruminants right so very low PUFA but also low carbohydrate low insulin right and then we, right. we can have a third control arm where they can just go eat ad libs but stay on American diet my right. big question is if we lose all the body fat basically get all that PUFA out of the body fat right will SCD1 just naturally come down um so then you can eat ad lib non poofa foods like the high starch or like the high starch diet of the of the Chinese right. and be good absolutely or, or is scd1 now pathologically turned on that if you went down that route you would just get fat again um no i so i, I strongly believe like you know perhaps sort of despite all of the evidence sort of suggesting otherwise that <laughs> like I can't see a theoretical reason why, you know, we sort of can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again once we understand how he works, right? Like, you know, because I don't think anyone has really, like, approached (laughs) obesity like this before. And so I think that, I think I'm like, you know, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I, I feel like, You know, what's kind of amazing is that so much good science has been done in the last 20 years that I feel like I look at this now and I'm like, you know what? We actually have a pretty good idea of how this all works. Um, But I think that you have to, uh, I think you have to approach the literature from the right mind frame to see it right and i think that the i think the scientists doing the research are thinking about you know how do we turn this into a pharmaceutical um i through you know random chance and circumstance the the actual reason that i got interested in the china health study was that at the time this was 20 years ago I was doing keto. Well, back then I was really doing Atkins and my little brother. So the guy who did the health China health study is a professor at Cornell and he taught a vegetarian nutrition class at Cornell. And my little brother took his class and became a vegetarian. And so I was kind of debating with my brother and I became interested in the subject matter. And that's when I bought, my copy of the China health study and started looking at it and, you know, continued to look at it for like the next 20 years, literally. Um, But, you know, having that China health study sitting on my table and continuing to flip through it, it became impossible to, (laughs) you know, uh, stick with the idea that Atkins or keto is like, you know, the correct and proper way to go about things, even though I knew that they worked for me, right. Or they had worked for me in the past. And so that, you know, just that bit of like reality, you know, owning that book forced me to like change my preconceptions and I knew, and then sure. And then I bought the farm here in New York and I 
got this pamphlet. I, I, I like old farm literature and my aunt's an antique collector. Hmm. And I told her that I liked old, you know, agricultural literature. And she like for Christmas gave me like this stack of like pamphlets that the um, cooperative extension had put out like in the, you know, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. And most of them were stupid, how to grow carrots, you know, and there was like a hundred of them, dumb, dumb, whatever, 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 whatever. And then I was like, hmm, this one's interesting. And it was, and I've, I've published this whole thing on my blog now, but um, in digital format, but it was the um, food, food. It was like, it's really about economics, food from the farm. That's what it's called. Yep. And so, and I start flipping through it and they're listing like, and mind you, this is not this is not about nutrition. It's about economics, and it's about how much money farm families can save by producing their own food. And it's showing how much of all the different how much money these guys save by growing their own milk. And a lot they all all, all had dairy cows. Mm-hmm. And like the families that they profiled, <laughs> it was like every day th- there would be like mom, dad, two kids, and like one hired guy who ate half of his meals there or something. And it was like every day they were going through one quart of cream, like a full quart of heavy cream. And then like, you know, two gallons of milk, two gallons of whole milk, probably from Jersey cows. That was like five, 6% butter fat. Then like, um, you know, a <laughs> couple pounds of butter a week and you know, beef and pork and like a dozen eggs a day. And I just couldn't believe the amount of, you know, the amount of fat that traditional New York farming families ate, even to me is mind blowing. And and I, for a long time was like a very heavy consumer of fat because I was keto and like, you know, that's what I was doing. And, and even from my perspective, I looked at this and was like, Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I don't know if you flipped. I saw that on my blog or looked at I it did. all. But it's kind of mind blowing, and you're like, it's mind blowing. And so then you know, and and then you count up the calories, and you're like, well, the calories must have been astronomical. And then of course, and then my grandfather passed away, and he had all these old USDA yearbook of agriculture's, and I was looking through those, and then I found that other study from like the 30s, and that was showing the amount of calories that city people ate in the u.s in the 1930s and it totally confirms what the what the other pamphlet said but it also actually had like calculated the calories right and it was showed that the most the most wealthy men in cities so these would not have been the most physically active were eating 4500 calories a day in the 1930s and you're like huh when I so, read that, you know, yeah, I you know, like, it, it's it's kind of rant, right, and so so like all of these, all of this kind of background knowledge that sort of informs my viewpoint when I'm looking through the literature, kind of came to me through random chance and happenstance. <laughs> you know what I mean? There wasn't, there's no grand plan, but you know, you stumble across enough things and you kind of like, then you, 
I guess, build your hypothesis from that. And then once you have that hypothesis, then you look at the literature and you're like, oh, well, this is really interesting. And that's, you know, and, and, it, and it starts to come together and then you have a cohesive story. So it's, 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 it's fun. And I think what that highlights maybe the most to me is that the, we did not all suddenly become like, like you say, gluttonous and sloths. Like right. that is not the cause of obesity. We didn't just start eating way more than we ever ate and stop moving. Right. There's something else fundamentally going wrong. And I think when you take that perspective, it takes you down into, I guess, the rabbit holes that we've both fallen down is like something else has got to be going, going on. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because, because the, yeah, the, the stories that were told by, you know, the dietary powers that be just don't hold water. No. And, and, and more to the point, they've been broadly disproven, you know, like the idea that you can lose weight by just simply eating less. There's been like a hundred dietary trials done like that. And at the end of the day, they just don't work. Right. We know that doesn't work. <laughs> so like exercising more, we know that doesn't work either. That's been broadly, that works even less than restricting calories. It doesn't work at all I, it, when you actually I, test it. Yeah. You wrote and so we only have two ideas and they're both broadly disproven. Yeah. I, one of my favorite blog posts you have, which I love basically all of them is I think it was response to, to Ponzer's. Uh, and you talked about the biggest loser. And when I read that, these biggest losers, losers, they lost hundreds of pounds, right? They right. were very big, lost a ton of weight. And the thing you noted, are, the study that they reference is like, we follow up six years later, they gained the weight back and some, the metabolisms did not totally recover from pre-competition levels. Right. It was like the this, this study. Uh, but I think the point that you brought up and what super like got me thinking is like, because you compared them to the World War II uh, conscious objectors who were basically starved and refed diets presumably not super high in PUFAs because PUFAs were still not as widespread in the 40s, right. 50s. Uh, what if we took those biggest losers and refed them different diets? Would they become obese? Some, it depends. Like, right. My question is like, is can we fix the machinery by forcing fat off like they did in The Biggest Loser? And right, right. Regaining... A normal, normal, non-hibernating metabolism because we saturate the fat when we refill. Right, so right. Well, and what I would, what I would like to do, and I don't know if this is possible. It's what I'm trying to figure out. Is, you know, is it is it possible to shift something so that you can lose weight while actually, essentially continuing to eat the same number of calories, but either through, you know, sure, being very careful about exactly what you're eating or perhaps by using the proper supplements or whatever it is, you know, if you can find a way to tip the scale without reducing your caloric intake, right. you might actually be able to lose sort of like, you know, lose That's a magic the bullet, lose. Well, it's not even really a magic bullet. I guess what I'm saying is people could do it. Can, is there a way to lose the weight simply by increasing your metabolic rate first? Um, and of course that would mean reducing SCD one probably, 
Um, that would mean getting out of reductive stress. That would mean, right. I mean, one of the ways, of course, to get out of reductive stress is by reducing SCD1. <laughs> and so, it, you know, it, they all, <laughs> it's all one big feedback loop, really. But it's like, how do you break out of that feedback loop? Like, how do I magically go back to my lean weight the same way that the guy who had just completed the Guru Walla did, right? He just went back to eating his normal 3,300 calories a day or whatever it was. Right. And at his normal eating rate, you know, he lost the 30 kilograms because his metabolic rate was right. normal. Not, right, not sleeping. Not broken, right? He wasn't broken and he'd never eaten Bufa. And therefore, once he stopped overeating, once he stopped purposefully overeating, right. the weight just came off and he didn't have to, he never did any dieting. Right. Right. He just lived his life. Yep. And that's how it should be. Right. And so that's what I'm, I'm trying. Yeah. That, that's my question is like, is there a way to sh get back to that without having to like fast all of the weight off? Because that's, that's my question. Is that right. Because the, the, the problem with fasting all the weight off is that it kills your metabolic rate. And sure. Maybe once you've killed it all off, there's a way to rebuild it. And then you rebuild it. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, like, I don't know. Because if the stored PUFA in adipose is the cause of the problem and you can't fix the cause without getting rid of them, I, what I think the supplement that to me is the most seems, I don't know, maybe the, a, a few of them work, but like, I like how you explain it. The stearic acid, if you're taking a lot of stearic acid in, maybe you can take enough where you increase the octane of the blend so much right. that even though you have a lot of stored PUFA, you're burning it with this super high octane blend. That's enough to get you out of the hibernation mode. Well. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and we don't, yeah, the, right. So there's a lot of different ideas and I don't know what, I'm, I'm hoping that the, uh, that the succinate can sort of do that same thing of like, right. um, get, you know, one thing we know about, one thing we know about succinate, interestingly, is that in, in mice anyways, Succinate is vastly preferentially taken in by brown fat, um, which is thermogenic fat. And so it's possible that succinate can help build your fat, brown, brown fat, fat tissue. I don't know if it does that, but I, I, I think it does in mice. Uh, will that happen in humans? I, you know, I don't know who can say. Um, but yeah, that's right. So hopefully there's a way to do this. One, one thing I do want to that I like to uh, reiterate is that actually, I mean, in most obese people, even though, <laughs> even though I argue that this whole thing starts with eating too much PUFA, most obese people don't actually have that high amount of stored PUFA. And most of the reason for that is that, you know, once you get torpid, then you start cranking out, um, monounsaturated, monounsaturated fats. And so if you look at obese people, they're actually full of MUFA. They're not yeah. really full of PUFA. Um, and so that's really mostly what we have to get rid of, <laughs> but either way, it's the unsaturated fat, but it, on the other hand, maybe it's easier to get rid of MUFA than it is to get rid of PUFA. So maybe that's a, maybe that's good news. I'm not sure. <laughs> but obviously if the SCD one is there, well, you know, and the other thing, I, here's the other thing that I don't know about SCD1. So SCD1 lives in the endoplasmic reticulum. And the endoplasmic reticulum is kind of like the highway of the cell. 
And so the SCD1 definitely affects your um, desaturation level of your stored fat. But what I don't know is like if I eat stearic acid, when it's taken into a cell to be metabolized, as it passes through the cytoplasm on the way to the mitochondria, is SCD1 there, you know, sitting there and intercepting it and desaturating it before it can actually make it to the mitochondria? Right. And I don't know the answer of that. Because then it's just that something would, I wonder about. Right. That would hurt the ability of that. Kind of, right. You talk about first in, first out, right? If I eat all the stearic acid, is that going to be the first thing I'm going to burn? Which makes sense because it doesn't have to break it down again, right? It would right. Uh, but yeah, there, that's actually a very interesting question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't know the answer. I, I don't know. I don't even know how you do that experiment. It'd be very hard. Yeah, that's a hard one. I have to think about that, that experimental design. I yeah. want to see if I can get volunteers to sign up for mine or yeah. I can do a virtual Biggest Loser event <laughs> and then do a proper refeed and see, see how it works. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, well, Brad, I want to pre- I thank you so much for your time. I mean, we, we chatted forever. This has been awesome, like a dream conversation for me. So I appreciate it. Uh, we probably went into a lot of details for like, you know, detailed information for people to yeah. like, to get into the weeds a little bit. Yeah, I feel like we did a good job of not getting too lost down in the weeds. <laughs> we had to talk about the mitochondrial bottleneck a little bit, but yeah, I know. I mean that stuff to me it's it's so interesting and it helps people to know like, hey, why not eat that polyunsaturated fat or maybe why not eat so much oleic acid? Why why olive oil may not be the number right. one fat to go to. Uh, but anyways, I appreciate it, Brad. And again, I'll link to your meats, the supplements, and of course the blog blog of the year, my nominee. Uh, so (laughs) I I mean, I appreciate all the work you've done, uh, it's really helped me think about this stuff that I was thinking about for a long time. And like, you clarified it for me, like I didn't have to do any of the work. So thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Well, thank you for having me on. All right. I, I will hopefully talk to you soon. I'll see you on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Sounds great. All right. Bye, Brad. All right. Good to meet you. Bye-bye. Keep the radio going. Dr. Kevin Stock has more coming your way. For exclusive content, visit www.kevinstock.io.